Chapter Six, Part D of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Six, Part D. September twenty fourth. I've known for years that F is insane, but her latest phase is so fantastic and preposterous, I can hardly credit it. She demands flatly the Sisyphus take along at least fifty nubile females in order to restock the world after its reconquest. After catching my breath, I argued with her. The prospect of England's loss was by no means certain yet. Good. We'll give the girls a sea voyage and land them back safe and sound. We have enough supplies for six months. If we take along these superfluous passengers, our time will be cut to less than three. Her answer was a brutal piece of blackmail. No women, no go. If F were a young man instead of an elderly woman, I could understand this aberration better. September 25th. It seems Mrs. H.'s grandchildren are all girls between twelve and eighteen, which leaves the problem of fulfilling F.'s ultimatum to finding forty-seven others. I have delegated the selection to Mrs. H. September 26. Grass on sky for the second time. This invasion was not repulsed. September 27th. The cyclone fans have been set up from Moray Firth to the Firth of Lorne. I am in two minds about asking the Tharios to join us. The bill authorizing the construction of a vertical city at Stonehenge passed Commons. September 28th. Grass reported near Aberdeen. Panic in Scotland. No more train service. September 29th. Day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer proclaimed by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Grass south of the D. All mines shut down. September 30th. Every seaworthy vessel and many not seaworthy now under charter. I have ordered all remaining stores of concentrates loaded on our own holes to be manned by skeleton crews. They will stand by the Sisyphus on her voyage. Lack of railway transportation making things difficult. October 1st. They have actually broken ground at Stonehenge for Burlet's fantastic city. October 2nd. Wrote on my book for nearly twelve solid hours. The postal service has been stopped. October 3rd. Hearing the royal family have made no plans for departure, the London office ventured to offer them accommodations on one of our ships. I had always heard the House of Windsor was meticulous in its politeness, but I cannot characterize their rejection of our well-meant aid as anything but rude. October 4th. Mrs. H. asks, Are we to live solely on concentrates now the shops are shut? My query as to whether this seemed objectionable to her was evaded. October 5th. Grass in Inverness and Perthshire. October 6th. F. announces she is ready for another test. Under present conditions, the journey to Scotland being out of the question, we decided to use the Sisyphus again and the French coast, leaving tomorrow. 
October 11th. This constant series of frustrations is beyond endurance. In spite of F.'s noncommittal pessimism anticipating success only after the grass has covered England, I feel she is merely making some sort of propitiatory gesture when she looks on the darkest side of the picture that way. As for myself, I'm convinced the grass will be stopped in a week or so. But in the meantime, F's work advances by the inch, only to be set back again and again. We repeated the previous test with just enough added success to give our failure the quality of supreme exasperation. This time there was no question but what the growth sprayed actually withered within twenty-four hours. But it was not wiped out, and not long afterward it was overrun and covered up by a new and vigorous mass. Such a victory early in the fight would have meant something. Now it is too late for such piecemeal destruction. We must have a counteragent which communicates its lethal effect to a larger area of the grass and is actually touched by it, or at least makes the affected spot untenable for future growth. What help is it for F to rub her hands smugly and say, We're on the right track, all right. We've been on the right track for months, but the train doesn't get anywhere. October 12th. Columbus Day. October 13th. Grass in Fife and Sterling. BBC urges calm. October 14th. Rumor has it work abandoned at Stonehenge. It was a futile gesture anyway. I'm sure F will perfect the counteragent any day. October 15th. Mrs. H announced she has completed her selection of fifty young women, adding, I hope they will prove satisfactory, sir. For a horrible moment I wondered if she thought I was arranging for a harem. October 16th. Decided purely as a matter of convenience and not from panic, such as is beginning to affect even the traditionally stolid British, to move aboard the Sisyphus. Grass on the outskirts of Edinburgh. October 17th. In a burst of energy last night, I brought my history down to the grass in Europe. Disconcerting hitch. Most of the Sisyphus's crew, including the captain, want to take their wives along. I find it difficult to believe them all exoriously wed. At any rate, this is not a pleasure excursion. Agreed the captain should take his, and told him to effect some compromise on the others. The capacity of the Sisyphus is not elastic. October 18th. Grass almost to the tweed. PM on the wireless with the assurance a counteragent will be perfected within the week. F. Furious, wanted to know if I couldn't control my politicians better. I answered meekly, really her anger was ludicrous, that I was an American citizen, not part of the British electorate, and therefore had no influence over the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Seriously, however, perhaps the premature announcement will spur her on. The erratic phone service finally stopped altogether. October 19th. Riots and looting, un-English manifestations carried out in a very English way. Hysterical orators called for the destruction of all foreign refugees from the grass, or at very least their exclusion from the benefits of the lootings. 
In every case, the mob answered them in almost identical language. Fair play. Share and share alike. Your name, Hitler, maybe? Come off it, sonny. Who are you? Gord almighty's foreigner, ain't he? Having heckled the speakers, they proceeded cheerfully to clean out all stocks of available goods, the refugees getting their just shares. There must be a peculiar salubrity about the English air. Otherwise, Britons could not act so differently at home and abroad. Thankful, indeed, all consolidated pemmican stores safely loaded. October 20th. As anticipated, the grass crossed the Tweed into Northumberland, but quite unexpectedly, England has also been invaded from another quarter. Norfolk has the grass from Yarmouth to Cromer. F, the PM, and myself hanged in effigy. Shall not tarry much longer. October 21st. Durham and Suffolk consulted the captain about a set of auxiliary sails for the Sisyphus, moving aboard tonight. October 22nd. Heard indirectly that the Tharios had managed to charter a seagoing tug on shares with friends. This takes a great load off my mind. Postponed moving to the ship in order to superintend packing of personal possessions, including the manuscript of my history. F. says it is still not impossible to perfect compound before the grass reaches London. October 23rd. On board the Sisyphus. What has become of the stolid heroism of the English people? On the way down to the ship, I ran into a crowd no better behaved than the adherents of the Republic one and indivisible. I mention the episode lightly, but it was no laughing matter. I was lucky to escape with my life. Nervous and upset with the strain, I shall not return to the ivies till the grass begins its retreat. Too restless to continue my book, paced the deck a long time. October 24th. The fifty girls arrived, and a more maddening cargo I can't imagine. I gave orders to keep them forward, but their shrill presence nevertheless penetrates aft. I hear all electricity has been cut off. Grass in Yorkshire. October 25th. F. came aboard with the other scientists and immediately wanted to know why we didn't set sail. I asked her if her work could be carried on any more easily at sea. She shrugged her shoulders. I pointed out that only rats leave a sinking ship, and England was far from overcome. She favored me with one of her fixed stares. You are dithery, Wiener. Your epigrams have lost their jaunty air of discovery, and your face is almost green. You would not expect me to remain unaffected by the events around us, Miss Frances. Wouldn't I? She retorted incomprehensibly and went below to her cabin laboratory. The grass is reported in Essex and Harfordshire. I understand there are at least two other ships equipped for research and manned by English scientists. It would serve F. right if they perfected a counteragent first. October 26th. 
have ordered our accompanying ships to lie offshore lest they be boarded by fear-crazed refugees for the grass is now in the vicinity of london and england is in a horrible state october twenty seventh bbc transmitting from penzance faint november third on board the sisyphus off silly the last days of england have passed heightening the horror the bbc in its final moments forewent its policy of soothing its listeners and urging calmness upon them instead it organized an amazing news service using thousands of pigeons carrying messages from eyewitnesses to the station at penzance to give a minute-by-minute account of the end dispassionately and detachedly as though this were some ordinary disaster Announcer after announcer went on the air and read reports. Heart-piercing, anticlimactic, tragic, trivial, noble, and thoroughly English reports. The people vented their futile rage and terror in mass pyromania. Building after building, city after city, was burned to the ground. But according to the BBC, the murderous frenzy of the continent was not duplicated. Inanimate things suffered. Priceless art objects were kicked around in the streets, but houses were carefully emptied of inhabitants before being put to the torch. These were the spectacular happenings, the emphatic events. Behind them, and in the majority, were quieter, duller transactions. Churches and chapels filled with people sitting quiet in pews meditating, gatherings in the country where the participants looked at the sun earth and sky vast meetings in hyde park proclaiming the indissoluble brotherhood of man even in the face of extinction we heard the queen and her consort remained in buckingham palace to the last but this may be only romantic rumor at all events england is gone now after weathering a millennium of unsuccessful invasions from where I sit peacefully, bringing my history up to date and jotting these notes in my diary, I can see, faintly with the naked eye, or quite distinctly through a telescope, that emerald gem set in a silver sea. The great cities are covered. The barren moors, the lovely lakes, the gentle streams, the forbidding crags, are all mantled in one grassy sward. England is gone and with it the world what few men of forethought who have taken to ships what odd survivors there may be in arctic wastes or on lofty andean or himalayan peaks together with the complement of the sisyphus and its accompanying escort are all that survive of humanity it is an awesome thought later Reading this over, it seems almost as though I had been untrue to my fundamental philosophy. The world has gone, vanished, but perhaps it is for the best after all. We shall start again in a few days with a clean slate, picking up from where we left off, for we have books and tools and men of learning and intelligence to start a new and better world the moment the grass retreats. I am heartened by the thought." Below, Miss Frances and her co-workers are striving for the solution. After the last experiment, there can be no question as to the outcome. 
An hour ago I would have written that it was deplorable this outcome couldn't be achieved before the latest victory of the grass. Now I begin to believe it may be a lucky delay. November 4th What meaning have dates now? We shall have to have a new calendar, before the grass and after the grass. November 5th Moved by some incomprehensible morbidity, I had a stainless steel chest complete with floats made before embarkation in order to place the manuscript and diary in it should the impossible happen. I have it now on the deck beside me as a reminder never to give way to a weak despair. F promises me it is a matter of days, if not hours, till we can return to our native element. November 8th. Another test. Almost completely successful. F certain the next one will do it. My emotions are exhausted. November 9th. I have completed my history of the grass down to the commencement of this diary. I shall take a well-earned rest from my literary labors for a few days. F announces a new test. The final one, Wiener, the final one, for tomorrow. November 10th. Experiment with a now-perfected compound has been put off one more day. F is completely calm and confident of the outcome. She is below now, making last-minute preparations. For the first time, she has infected me with her certitude. Although I never doubted ultimate success, and I feel tomorrow will actually see the beginning of the end for the grass, which started so long ago on Mrs. Dinkman's lawn. How far I and the world have come since then. Would I go back to that day if I had the power? It seems an absurd question, but there is no doubt we who have survived have gained spiritual stature. Of course I do not mean anything mystical or supernatural by this observation. We have acquired heightened sensitivity and new perceptions. Brother Paul, ridiculous mountebank, was yet correct in this. The grass chastised us rightly. Whatever sins mankind committed have been wiped out and expiated. Later. We are out of sight of land, nothing but sea and sky, no green anywhere. On the eve of liberation, all sorts of absurd and irrelevant thoughts jump about in my mind. The strange lady, Joe's symphony burned by his mother. Whatever happened to William Rufus Lefassacy after he eschewed his profession for superstition? And Mrs. Dinkman. For some annoying reason, I am beset with the thought of Mrs. Dinkman. I can see her pince-nez ill-adjusted on her nose. I can hear her high-pitched complaining voice bargaining with me over the cost of inoculating her lawn. The ugly stuff of her tasteless dress is before my eyes. It is so real to me, I swear I can see the poor irregular lines of the weaving. Still later, I have sat here in a dull lethargy, undoubtedly induced by my overwrought state, quite understandable in the light of what is to happen in a few hours, my eyes on the scenes of the deck, reviewing all the things I have written in my book, preparing myself, in a way, for the glorious and triumphant finish. But I am beset by delusions. 
A moment ago it was the figure of Mrs. Dinkman, and now... And now, by all the horror that has overcome mankind, it is a waving, creeping, insatiable runner of the grass. Again, I have made no attempts to pinch off the green stolen. It must be three inches long by now, and the slim end is waving in the wind, seeking for a suitable spot to assure its hold doubly. I touched it with my hand, but I could not bring myself to harm it. I managed to drag my eyes away from the plant and go below to see Miss Frances. I stood outside the cabin for a long time, listening to the noise and laughter, coupled with a note of triumph I had never heard before, and which I am sure indicates indubitable success. There can be no question of that. There can be no question of that. The stolen has pressed itself into another same. The blades are very green. They have opened themselves to the sun and are sucking strength for the new shoots. I have put my manuscript into the casket which floats, leaving it open for this diary if it should become necessary. But, of course, such a contingency is absurd. Absolutely absurd. The grass has found another seam in the deck. End of chapter 6 End of Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore